Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can come and study your word together. Uh, we ask that this help us to grow in fellowship with you. Yes, God. Uh, ultimately, that is our goal, that uh, as we study your word, as uh, we pray together, as we come to understand you better, we want to draw closer to you. And drawing closer to you, uh, being the cornerstone of the church, we draw closer to one another as well. So, Lord, we, we pray that uh, you lead us by the power of the Spirit and that we grow strong in your word. And we ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. 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 Okay, so tonight we've got a little bit of review and then we move forward because John in the last one, or in the, our last uh, section of scriptures, made the argument that the world and the church are in opposition to one another, that the believers don't have friendship with the world system, that we are outside of it, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised then if the world system is against us. But tonight, we're going to look at uh, what we call some friendly fire, that uh, essentially this is a military term for getting shot by your own compatriots, that uh, uh, John will make the argument that it is possible for a Christian to hate another Christian, but that it should be strange, that it should not be what is expected of Christians. When they do that, they're acting outside of, uh, outside of the life that lives within them through the Spirit and through Jesus Christ. So they are choosing instead to live in darkness rather than to live in the light if they are hating their brothers. So it is not the expected response of a Christian. It is expected of a Christian that he be in fellowship and love his brothers. So we're going to look at what does it look like to not love your brothers, and then what does it look like to actually love your brothers? So our first verse by way of review, 1 John 3, 11 through 12, he says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So we want to remind ourselves that John is not speaking uselessly here. He is giving his uh, church a command, an exhortation, uh, because they need to hear it, because it is possible for them to disobey this commandment, so they need to hear it again and be sure that they are living by this commandment. Uh, he is not speaking empty words here. If it were impossible for a Christian to hate his brother to the point of even slaying him, then there would be no need for John to say this to his Christian brothers. But he is telling them that, <coughs> excuse me, that they need to be on guard against the evil one to not let the devil have a foothold so that they can remain in fellowship and love one another rather than harming one another. And this was essentially James's argument as well. And we're going to come back to James as well at the end so that we can see what does it actually mean to love your brothers. Uh, but James 3 verses 13 through 15, this is right after James section on controlling your tongues speaking 
speaking wisely and loving things rather than uh, sowing dissension. But James makes this argument that there's two kinds of wisdom. One kind of wisdom is demonic. It has a source in evil. It has a source in sin. It's the same kind of wisdom that Satan is controlled by, that his wisdom is darkened, but he still does have wisdom, but it's not a heavenly wisdom. What we want to be controlled by instead is heavenly wisdom. So what James says here in James 3, 13 through 15, actually we'll go all the way through 18. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. He wants you to confess this and to uh, seek heavenly wisdom. He says this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, and demonic. So this wisdom we want to operate by is not the wisdom of this earth. It's the wisdom of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom that the spirit can put in us when we are living in the spirit. So it says essentially here, we are now Christians. We have the spirit living within us. We have all the faculties of the spirit available to us. So stop living by earthly wisdom, live by heavenly wisdom. <clears throat> For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, a lot of these will sound familiar to the fruits of the Spirit, and that is uh, very telling because it is by the Spirit that we are wise in Christ. And the fruits of the Spirit are often, uh, I think, misinterpreted. They are not uh, pick a few here and uh, pick a few there. They all grow off the same tree. If the tree is healthy, if the tree is growing, they are all present. So we don't grow in one area of the fruits of the spirit and not in others. We don't need work in some and not others. If one area of the fruits of the spirit is weak, they're all weak. And that means essentially that we are not yielding ourselves completely to the spirit. So it's not a matter of which fruits of the spirit are you good at, but are you resting continually in all of the fruits of the spirit? So we want to be resting and yielding in yielding to the Spirit, resting in the Spirit, so that uh, the fruit of the Spirit can work through us. <clears throat> Remember, we don't produce this fruit. We only bear this fruit. When we allow the Holy Spirit to produce it, uh, then we will see all of the fruits of the Spirit in our walk. And that's the goal. That's the faith made perfect, is when the fruits of the Spirit are actually working through your faith. So then he says in verses 13 through 14, he says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Remember, we looked at this verse, but we didn't study it last time. He says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death 
into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Now, there's a lot of important words here because uh, this is usually where commentators take two different paths. They're either going to take the path that, uh, that is in context with 1 John, understanding that Christians do sin, that Christians have a perfect, sympathetic high priest whose blood covers their sins, that they can confess their sins and come back into fellowship. Or they're going to look at this verse and say that if a Christian hates his brethren, he was never a Christian to begin with. But that doesn't stand up well to the context, to the language, or to other revelation. So we need to look at some of these terms and make sure that we understand what do they mean. First of all, John is using the term brethren, and he uses this twice in here. He says, don't be surprised, brethren. He inserts it in the middle of another statement. He's reminding them that they are brothers. And then he says, because we love the brethren, he is again reminding them that they are all brethren together. This word brethren is only used in the faith community. You are not brothers with the world. You are brothers with, uh, with other children of God. The world can be brothers with themselves, uh, but we are of a different parentage. We are of a different lineage. So these brothers are all saved believers, um, whether or not they are acting as good brothers or not. Remember, we just had the example of Cain and Abel. They were brothers, but they did not act as good brothers. Cain slew his brother. So we know that brothers can act evilly against one another. Now, that was the analogy of natural brothers. But John is using this example so that we can see that just like natural brothers can hate each other, so can spiritual brothers, and we need to guard against that. But he says, uh, don't be surprised if the world hates you. This isn't surprising. The world probably should hate us because we are light in their darkness and light extinguishes darkness. We are like a cancer on their earth, remember. They want us out, uh, but we're a good cancer, not a bad cancer. Um, or should I say in this day and age, we're like a virus in their earth. Uh, we uh, repopulate. Amen to that, Janet says. Uh, but then it says, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Now this no uh, is used often by John to indicate experience. We know it as a fact, but what he's talking about here is a deeper intimate knowledge not like knowing a fact, but like knowing a person, where you actually get to know who they are uh, by experiencing that person. So this knowledge is experiential knowledge. And what John is about to talk about is going to be experiential faith, uh, where our faith is actually alive and working, uh, as it should be in our day-to-day -day lives for sanctification purposes. So he says, if a brother is hating another brother. He is not abiding. He's not resting. He's not living in this life that is available through Christ. Um, he is instead abiding in death. Now, some translations of the Bible have, have translated this very poorly and said that he has no life in him. 
That's not what the Greek text says. In fact, the NASB does a very good job here of translating it. And it says, he who does not love abides, that's the Greek word meno, to rest or to stay within death. So when we are reborn through the spirit by the power of Jesus Christ, we are born again into life. But we have the old nature still living within us. So what he's saying here is those who are acting on the old nature are resting in the old nature. They're staying there. Even though they have the spirit within them, they are choosing not to use the spirit, not to rest in the spirit. <clears throat> so in John 15, uh, verses 18 through 19, Jesus tells us again that the world will hate us, and it gives us the reason. Why does the world hate us? He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's Christ within us that the world hates. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So Jesus Christ has not only plucked us out of this world, but he has caused us to be reborn, not through the seed of Adam, but through the seed of Christ. We are reborn spiritually. We are no longer sharing in the fate of this world, but we share in the fate of Christ, which is to rule in heaven for, uh, for first a thousand years on this earth and then for eternity with Christ. So these are our three enemies. We've seen these a couple of times now, but we want to emphasize the fact that these are our enemies, not unbelievers. Unbelievers are our enemies in terms of the gospel, but they are not, uh, not those who we should be taking out our anger on. In fact, Jesus Christ is the one unto whom vengeance is given, and Jesus Christ takes out his vengeance on the devil the flesh in the world. Uh, those who are not born again through Jesus Christ will suffer eternal punishment for not having been obedient to the gospel. Um, but these are the enemies, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So uh, I was watching the Matrix movie. I don't know if any of you have seen this, uh, but Morpheus, when he's talking to Neo, at one point, they are looking around at all of the people in the matrix and he tells neo these aren't your enemies but while they are part of the matrix and the matrix is your enemy they will act as enemies and that's essentially what's going on here is that our mission field our goal is to save others out of this world the world is the enemy but for them it's going to act like a friend and that's what Chafer says here in uh, his Systematic Theology, Volume 3. He writes, it is generally recognized that the Christian faces three opposing forces, which are the sources of evil, the cosmos world, that means the world system, the flesh, and the devil, and that when he was in his unregenerate state, that is before he was saved, these three forces were in no way arrayed against him. They were not his enemies. For he was part of the cosmos world. He was restricted in his being to the flesh. He did not have the spirit. And he was under the dominion of Satan. That means Satan was his rightful ruler. 
conscience and social ideals, that is the wisdom of this earth that we looked at uh, in James, conscience and social ideals may have made their feeble, that is weak, demands upon him, but he knew little, if anything, of the unceasing conflict besetting the child of God. So the world is going kind of crazy right now with all of its uh, social ideals. All of these, uh, this wisdom of the earth that says we need to divide on race so that we can be united on race, so that we need to understand sexuality as a spectrum rather than how God created it to be one man and one woman. These are demonic ideas. This is social ideals of the world. But for the world, this makes sense. This is their expression of love. This is how they understand love. But for us, being led by the Spirit, being uh, founded upon God's Word, we understand that this is not love. In fact, this is a demonic deception. They are lying to us through the world. Now, it makes the world comfortable to live in these, in the flesh, in the world, and um, together with the devil. But for us, it should make us very uncomfortable. These are the enemies against us. <clears throat> but the problem arises when we as Christians began to take pot shots at one another, when instead of being a united front, standing on the word of God, fully vested in, in the armor of God, if instead we start to engage in friendly fire and kill one another, uh, we are making friends with the world and not living in the spirit. <clears throat> So here in, uh, in James 4, this is immediately after the verses where James talks about demonic wisdom. He continues into chapter 4, and he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflict among who? Among you. He says, Why are you all quarreling? Why are you fighting with one another? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? It's all founded upon the pleasures of the flesh. So he's saying here that in this case, the unbridled tongue, uh, yes, hello, welcome. Uh, the unbridled tongue, uh, that means the tongue that you are not controlling. Uh, this particular sin that James is talking about comes from the sins of the flesh. He says, these are the sources of pleasure that wage war in your members. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. So this is, a, again, the pride of life, uh, the pride of the eye and the sinful lust of the flesh. So he says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, what did Cain lust after that he did not have? It was Abel's righteousness. But he didn't identify Abel's righteousness with God. He identified it with the works of Abel's hands. So he killed Abel. Now there's an interesting, uh, interesting element that we could draw out of this, was that God demanded a blood sacrifice. Abel offered a blood sacrifice, and so did Cain. But Cain's blood sacrifice was a demonic sacrifice. He offered his brother Abel. When God came to him and he said, you, you don't do well because you've offered a poor sacrifice in the grain, in the grain offering. You were supposed to offer a blood sacrifice. 
Well, essentially, Cain thumbs his nose at God and says, you want a blood sacrifice? I'll give you a blood sacrifice. And he kills his righteous brother, Abel. Uh, this is demonic wisdom. This is not wisdom that comes from above. This is wisdom that comes from the earth. And it leads to death. Um, and it, it is a house divided against itself committing murder. So we don't want to be a house divided against ourselves. We rest on Jesus Christ. Uh, so he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now this verse again, I think should be uh, together with verse three, not together with verse two. Um, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. We don't ask for things through the will of the spirit, but we're asking things through the will of the flesh. And that's why we're not receiving them. But if we are resting in the spirit and led by the spirit, we will be asking for those things which are in accordance with God's will. So we need to rest in the spirit and trust God to work and to will within us so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So that is the purpose of the things that they are asking for so that they can spend it on their pleasures. And when they don't get it, they get jealous of those who have it. And so they murder. Uh, James continues, he says, you adulteresses. Now, James also likes using the word brethren. In his epistle, he's always calling his audience brethren. But here he changes and he says, instead of brethren, he says, you adulteresses. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So these are Christians who are acting as friends with the world. They are living like the world. And this is a lot like uh, the cult of Christian liberalism that we have very strongly in America. I don't know how much in, in um, South Asia, but Christian liberalism looks at the world, interprets love through the lens of the world and the world's wisdom, and then it turns its guns on uh, Christians who are biblically centered. And it says, you guys aren't loving because the world doesn't recognize what you how you love as love. So they want our love to conform to the ideals of the world rather than the ideals of God. So he continues, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So these are Christians who are choosing to have friendship with the world but they don't get to have their cake and eat it too. They can't be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time because the world system is set against God. You can't be friends with an enemy. Um, there, they have to remain the enemy. He says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He says, do you think that everything written is useless? Um, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we want to be humbled before the Lord so that he gives us grace in our lives so that we don't come under temporal judgment. Uh, we want to receive his grace. So his conclusion then, now this is uh, specifically the remedy for friendship with the world uh, as opposed to friendship with God. He says, then submit to God. Do the will of God. Remember, Jesus says, he who loves me follows my commandments. 
He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is closer, intimate fellowship. When we yield to the spirit, when we rest in the Lord, um, he draws close to us and we, uh, we can even sense him together with us. It says to be drunk in the spirit. That means to let the spirit have so much control over you that it is as if um, drinking alcohol, when it takes control of your mind and lowers your inhibitions, you want your inhibitions lowered against the spirit so that you're not restricting the spirit from working through you. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is speaking to, uh, this is James speaking to his audience. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now these the audience for James was a Jewish audience. They were Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews. Um, so they would have understood the ceremonial uh, purpose for washing their hands. Uh, this has the idea of ceremonial unclean, uncleanliness. He says, then purify your hearts. Just as they are ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, representing the uncleanliness within them, then he calls them double-minded. Now, an unbeliever cannot be double-minded. They have only one nature, the sin nature, and the sin nature always agrees with itself. Here, they are called double-minded because they have the new nature and they have the old nature, and they're choosing to live in the old nature that should be dead. They are, in, a, in essence, drawing it up out of the grave so that they can live through that dead body. It's like Paul says, who can rescue me from this body of death? Who can rescue me from this dead body? Well, and his answer to that is, Jesus Christ has set me free. I will rest in Jesus Christ. So he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Now, this isn't a flat statement to all of us that this needs to be uh, how we live life. We don't live life miserable, mourning, and weeping. But if we have raised ourselves up in our own uh, minds and our own emotions to be proud and to be joyful with the world, then the remedy for that is contrition. The remedy for that is uh, to recognize the depravity that you have in the world. He says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. This is not the laughter that is together with Jesus Christ, this is the laughter of the world. He says, let that laughter of the world be turned into mourning. And this is not joy of resting in Christ. This is joy by the world standards. He says, let that joy turn into gloom. He says, recognize the world for the lie that it is. Recognize the death that is in this world so that when you are living in the life with Christ, then this laughter, this joy, this, uh, this laughter and this joy will be true, will be heavenly laughter, heavenly joy, just as the wisdom of Christ is not the same as the wisdom of this world. So the laughter and so the joy of Christ is not the same as this world. So he says again, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Bring yourself low, and the Lord will lift you up. Give up the things of this world, in other words, and the Lord will, uh, will give you the riches of his grace. <clears throat> so how do we then abide in the life? 1 John 3, 15 through 16, 
Oh, we've got some comments here. Okay. All right, First John 3, 15 through 16 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, here's that word abiding, meno. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now notice these in verse 16, he and his is capital H. Uh, this is referring back to Jesus Christ. That is the foundation on which we rest. But he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, just like Cain was a murderer. Now, in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus is going to correlate the concept of hatred with murder. If we are hating our brother, if we are despising our brother, then we are guilty also of the same consequences that murder would bring. He says, you have heard that the, ancient, uh, that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, the penalty of this liability to the court is a death sentence. Jesus continues, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So Jesus is showing us the severity of the root of the sin of murder. Uh, <coughs> we ought to be raising others up and humbling ourselves. Otherwise, we might be raising ourselves above the others and saying, they're good for nothing, they're worthless. Uh, they don't contribute as much as I do. They're not as good as I am. And eventually those thoughts and those ideas turn into hatred. And that hatred is what led Cain to murder. So Jesus is saying these are essentially equitable. All of these are guilty of the same sin. So finally, then we want to remind ourselves uh, some of the context of 1 John. When he's warning brothers not to fight, not to become like murderers. Uh, we want to remember that everything John is warning us against here is possible for us to engage in. We don't want to lift ourselves up and become haughty and think, it's impossible for me to act like this. It is possible. And, you know, we do no favors to the church to claim that this isn't possible because then when a Christian falls into it, they won't understand it. They won't be able to get out of it. Uh, we're actually destroying more witnesses than we are helping by cutting off the source of grace. So here in First uh, John 1, 8 through 10, we read, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John says, without any question, Christians will sin. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you recognize sin in your walk, when the spirit convicts you of a sin, don't hide. Don't run away from Christ. Walk in the light. Confess your sin to Christ. Tell him uh, you need his grace. Recognize together with him. That's the idea of repentance. 
is to come into agreement with God. Change your mind from your sinful ways to agree with God in his righteousness and say, uh, I'm not able to cleanse myself, Lord, but you are. And when you rest in him, uh, when you have faith in him, when you trust that he is going to bring you into glorification in the end, then you've got your eyes set on him and that that hope of future glory cleanses you and gives you the peace to draw close to him. And in verse 10, he has a, a much harsher statement. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So denying the fact that we ourselves have sin makes God a liar because his word would contradict that statement. And we would be choosing to, um, to identify God as a liar if we try to identify ourselves as sinless people. <clears throat> but thankfully, John continues, and he gives us some more hope. And he says, my little children. Now, remember, he's always calling us children, but here he uses a diminutive. That means uh, it brings us even closer to him. It, we can almost feel him putting his arms around us and saying, uh, let me give you some hope here. Yes, you're going to sin, but you have a high priest who is perfect and righteous. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That means he himself is the substitute for our sin, that we deserve to die and he died on our behalf. He says, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus Christ is available to every single person that you will encounter on the streets, in your job, anywhere. Most people are living in their death. They are abiding in their sins. Our job is to show them the Savior, to introduce them to Jesus, the great advocate, the one who was a propitiation, not just for our sins, but for the whole world, so that they can also have access to the grace that is in Christ, to the life that is in Christ. Now, we as Christians, if we are abiding in the death that used to be our only option before we had Christ, then we are making Christ as if he had no effect. Now, he has an effect. He, we will be glorified with him in the end, but we ought to be living in that truth today. And when we live in that truth, when we live in that faith and grace, we are sanctified by growing together with him in fellowship. So we must ask ourselves then, in what way are we suffering? Remember, we're told to have joy in our sufferings with Christ. But Peter is going to have another warning for us here. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Remember, the world is going to hate us. If the world hates us, we shouldn't wonder, what am I doing wrong? We should wonder... Uh, <coughs> Uh, what exactly they're seeing in us. Are they seeing Christ in us? And is it Christ that they're hating? Now, there is a way to make the world hate you without, without, uh, without it being Christ. You could go against their social constructs. Uh, remember, there is uh, conscience and social ideals that we can go against. But this isn't going to be as vitriolic as the hatred that they will have against Christ within us. 
he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. So he's saying, suffer for Christ, not because of sin. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in, his na in this name. So the world might come after us if we are, uh, let's say we're not a Christian and we commit a murder. The world is going to come after us for that, but they are suffering as a murderer. But strangely enough, the world comes after Christians just as voraciously as it comes after thieves and murderers and meddlers. So we want to make sure that we are suffering for the right reasons, that we are not engaging in the sins of this world and so being treated as an enemy, but that we're engaging in the spirit in this world so that the world despises us, not because of our sins, but because of Christ's righteousness. Just like Abel was despised for his righteousness that came from, from God, we want to suffer on behalf of righteousness and not like Cain, who was cursed and suffered as a murderer. So we want to remember then that his spirit dwells within us. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The spirit does not die within us. We can turn the volume down. We can mute him. We can choose to abide in death rather than abiding in the spirit. But the spirit remains and he is always there and always ready to take over when we yield to him. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, then the spirit has been placed in you. And if that spirit has been placed in you through faith alone, then you have the promise of eternal life with Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that we have to live in, that we get to live in. <clears throat> so then we have a new obligation because of this glory that is coming to us. We have this obligation. He says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. This is how we used to be obligated. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. The flesh is deserving and heading towards death. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. So we want to be led by the spirit to walk in his righteousness. So this is our last couple of verses here. Uh, 1 John 3, 17 through 18 John writes, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Now, this word up in verse 17, it says, whoever has the world's goods. The world's goods is the Greek word bios. We get the word uh, bio, like biology. Uh, this is a word for life. These are life-giving things. We're thinking like food and shelter. Uh, whoever has these life-giving materials, let him share those. He says, 
Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So remember the example that we live by is that Jesus Christ laid down his life, his zoe, uh, the very life within him. Uh, we might not have the opportunity to die for another brother. We might claim that we would if given the opportunity. But what John is saying here is if you won't share with your brothers life-giving things like food and shelter uh, and even your time, honestly, why would anyone trust? Why would anyone believe that you would actually die for your brother? If you can't give temporal goods, why would you give uh, anything greater than that? So he says, essentially, uh, the least you can do is share the world's goods because we have the hope of eternal life living within us. Uh, we shouldn't be as concerned with our day-to-day -day lives. You remember uh, in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus Christ is telling them, you're so concerned with what you're going to wear today, what you're going to eat today. Don't you know that even the birds and even the flowers are well-fed and well-dressed? Uh, God takes care of these concerns for us. So we shouldn't be hoarding them to ourselves so much that when we see someone in need of those things, we keep it from them, that we hide it away from them. But then we claim to be their brother. We claim to love them even to the point of giving our lives for them, but we won't share with them food. Uh, this is something that should make us question, am I really loving my brother? James is going to give us a very, very good um, explanation of what this faith um, is that leads towards um, helping our brothers. And this is what we would call then experiential faith. This isn't saving faith. This is faith that once we are saved should grow, uh, should grow like a tree uh, through the spirit so that it will bear fruit. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. That means it's not working together with, uh, <coughs> your faith is not working together with um, with good works, um, then obviously the spirit is not living through you. The spirit needs to be the sap that flows through the veins. If works aren't resulting from your faith, then you're blocking it off. You're not allowing the spirit to work in your body. So he says, oops, is that just the same? Yep, that's the same one. Okay. So even so, faith, if it has no works, it is dead being by itself. So we want living faith. We want a live faith. We want to rest in the spirit so that it bears fruit through us. And that's our second tense salvation. Uh, that is living and abiding in the vine. The vine produces uh, fruit. So we want to be the branches on this vine so that the vine might work through us to produce good works. Remember, these good works are not going to be 
our works. These are going to be the Spirit's work. When we yield to the Spirit, the Spirit will work and will within us to create good works. And those are all uh, righteousness that is building up for us in heaven, that we will have treasures that we can cast before the feet of the Lord to glorify him. So we want to be building up our treasures in heaven, to be building up our spiritual house by resting in the spirit. <clears throat> and that is uh, that is our message for this morning. All right, we have a comment. Lisa asks, how does the love of God abide in a man who has plenty and sees his brother in need, but closes his heart against him? Exactly. Um, how do we see God's love in someone who is not loving in a way that we can see? Uh, I didn't include the verses, but going um, further in James chapter 2, um, you'll read about, uh, about faith that justifies being faith that can be seen. Now, this is talking about justifying someone's faith before man, not before God. It says, essentially, if you're claiming to be a Christian, if you have Jesus Christ in you, but then you're acting like the world and the world sees that, how are they going to know the difference between a Christian and an unbeliever? You have the promise of eternal life living within you, um, but then you're acting just as bad as the world. You're not making them jealous for Jesus Christ, for the power that can set them free from this body of death. So if someone's being convicted by the Spirit, if the Spirit is working to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and he puts you in that path that you can minister to that person to show them the light of Christ, and you instead turn down the lights and live by the world instead, then your faith isn't working. Your faith isn't working to show others who Jesus Christ is. And that will bring Jesus glory if we are working together in the body, yielding to the Spirit so that others can see, uh, see the light of Christ living and working within us. So uh, if we are blessed with material goods, uh, it's a good thing to share those, not to hoard them and hold on to them. If we see someone who needs, give it to them. Uh, you're not the one who got that anyways. Even our salaries, uh, Jesus Christ gave that to us. We didn't earn that. We don't possess the breath within ourselves to, uh, to function uh, even. So when you receive a paycheck, thank the Lord for it. And if he gives you an opportunity to bless a brother with it, then do that. Um, he's going to provide for you. So uh, now I'm not here advocating um, every month giving away 100% of your salary. This is probably going to look more like works of the flesh trying to gain righteousness by doing your own works. But when the Lord leads you, when you're resting in the spirit and he shows you an opportunity, take that opportunity. Rest in faith and trust that Jesus Christ is going to provide. Okay. All right. Well, let's pray and let's close and I'll get you guys off to bed five minutes early. <laughs> All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the Apostle John. Uh, we thank you that uh, this man who you call the son of thunder uh, also has such a loving and tender heart that he would care for his congregation to share with them uh, your words, 
that they would love one another, that they would give freely to one another, that they would be led by the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that these words have an impact on our lives, on our hearts, uh, so that we might live by the Spirit more fully, so that we might yield more and more uh, easily, more willingly, and for longer periods of time, um, even so that we might not fall out of fellowship with the Spirit. Lord, we pray all these things in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good night, everyone. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. It's nice to meet you. Welcome, Wang. Welcome. Thank you. Sir Pastor Dane. Bye-bye. Bye. Good night. Good night.